Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. I hope you guys are having a rockin' Thursday. Yesterday I went in for that uh, root canal, and although they didn't get all of the infection out, uh, they got most of it, put me on antibiotics. I'm feeling 100% better, I tell you. Uh, now if we can just get this foot taken care of, I'll go to the chiropractor this afternoon, first time in a couple weeks. Uh, life is good, man. Is, can you feel the just the holiday spirit in the air? I've got Christmas lights up around my desk now. I've got stuff going on back in my my den in the back, and I'm I'm, I'm feeling it. Last night we were out. I tell you, before we get into today's show, I was out with the kids and just met a wonderful couple. They're in network marketing, and uh, they go out there to the church with us, and we just had a wonderful conversation, just a wonderful talk. And it's fun when you're just hanging with people that you love and you enjoy. The kids had a blast last night, uh, just a remarkable time, and it's what it's about. But in our conversation, she said, Troy, when you build your teams, do, do you demand that people put family aside, that that comes second? I said, never. I said, money is never the answer. Building a business is never the answer. We need to try to balance without a doubt. But I said, man, you need to always take time. And I've not done that. I have fallen short so many times in that, but I know that's what we're supposed to do. And that's how we build our teams. I'm so excited about that. We are in Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action by Simon Sinek. Chapter 13. Tomorrow we finish this story. We go into something new next week. But right here, the origins of why. I mean, we've been talking for for the last 12 days on the why, but we've not looked at where does the why come from? How do you get there? How do you even know? Now, there's some great books out there. Rick Warren wrote The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, Greg Cruschel wrote Kazone. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of books, but let's keep it in context today. The origins of why. He starts off with a phenomenal story. It all started in the Vietnam War era in Northern California where anti-governmental ideas and disdain for large centers of power ran rampant. Two young men saw the power of government and corporations as the enemy, not because they were big per se, but because they squashed the spirit of the individual. They imagined a world in which the individual had a voice. They imagined a time when the individuals could successfully stand up to the incumbent power, the old assumptions, the status quo thoughts, and successfully challenge them, even redirect them if they wanted. Ah, yeah, they hung out with the hippie types who shared their beliefs, but they saw a different way to change the world that didn't require protesting or engaging in something illegal. Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs came of age in this time. Not only was the revolutionary spirit running high in Northern California, but it was also the time and place of the computer revolution. And in this technology, they saw the opportunity to start their own revolution. The Apple gave an individual the power to do the same things as a company, Wozniak recounts. For the first time ever, one person could take on a corporation simply because they had the ability to use the technology. Wozniak engineered the Apple I and the Apple II to be simple enough for people to harness the power of the technology. Jobs knew how to sell it, thus was born Apple Computer, a company with a purpose to give the individual 
the power to stand up to establish the power. That's interesting. They empowered the dreamers of the and the idealistics to challenge the status quo and succeed. But their cause, their why, started long before Apple was born. It was back in 1971, working out of Wozniak's dorm room in, in UC Berkeley, that the two Steves made something they called the Blue Box. Their little device could hack the phone systems and give the people the ability to avoid paying long-distance bills. Apple computers didn't even exist, but Jobs and Woes was already challenging the Big Brother type of power. In that case, it was Ma Bell, the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, the monopoly. Technically, let's admit it, the blue box was illegal, and they never put it to use, but they could have. Several years later, the government ripped Ma Bell apart. It's starting to come back together again. But their ability to challenge the status quo was the same thing they did on April 1st, 1976, when they launched Apple Computer. And within six years, became a billion-dollar business. With the clarity of purpose, with amazing discipline, Apple succeeded because they followed the law of diffusion. See, this is what we have to do as individuals. We can do this. In 1984, they challenged the status quo again. They launched their famous commercial during the Super Bowl. Matter of fact, it's interesting because in 1984, with their with their movie-type commercial, that actually brought in the ear of all these wild and crazy commercials we see at the Super Bowl now. But with the Macintosh computer, Apple once again changed the tradition on how things were done. They challenged the standard of Microsoft's DOS because they used they used the actual click, point and click. It wasn't Microsoft with Windows that did it. It was Apple. What Microsoft Windows did was take it to the masses. It's interesting when we see things. When people have two different whys. See, Apple's why is to challenge the status quo. Microsoft's why is to change the world, and they did it. You know, when, when Windows 8 came out, I, I'm, I get to beta test most of the Microsoft products these days. One of the best operating systems I've ever worked with. But man, I can remember conversations my pappy and I had years ago. It seemed like every time a Windows version came out, it had bugs in it. It had security breaches in it. It was crazy. But they were always first to get it out. They did what had to be done. Apple has continued to challenge the status quo. They challenged the music industry with iTunes. They challenged the cell phone industry with iPhones. It's Apple's keen aptitude for innovation that was born out of their why. And the only time that was missing was when Steve Jobs was kicked out of the company between 85 and 97, and where you find that is over at Pixar and over at Next Computers. Do you realize Apple today wouldn't be what it was if it wasn't for Steve Jobs starting Next and them creating what is what we now know as the 
the iTouch, the iPad, all that technology. That came from his company. It didn't come from Apple Original. That's it's, it's interesting when you read about business history because what happens is you find out that it's driven by individual people. See, Apple's ability to do what they do have nothing to do with industry experience. Think about this for a second. All computer and technology companies have open access to talent, resources. There's white hat hackers, black hat hackers, all kinds of hackers. They're always out there doing something with code. But it comes down to the fact Steve Jobs once said, what I want to do is put a ding in the universe. And he did it. He changed society while he was alive. And his company and his why goes on today, and they'll continue to change things. It's interesting. When you really get down to it and you start looking at companies that are legacy companies, companies that succeed, you start to realize that there's no difference between their customers and their employees. One believes in the company's why so much they want to work for them. The other one believes in it so much they buy their product. Probably shareholders are that way a little bit if they keep holding the stock. See, the law of diffusion says that only 2.5% of the population has an innovator mentality. See, they're the people that are willing to trust their intuition and take great risk. I'm doing that with Ocean Avenue right now. We're, we're, I mean, here I'm broken foot, can't talk. We're out there cranking it, building it. Here's the funny thing. Apple believes in their why so much. The fact that individuals can take on big established corporations, that every product they bring out these days has an eye before it. A little eye. Because the little individual can take on the world. They own the eye. See, when you know your why you start to realize that the why comes long before the success and the achievement. Now think about that. Simon has another story in here that I thought was mesmerizing. See, the why comes from looking back. And when you, <coughs> when you realize this, life can change. Conservative estimates push the numbers to three to one, but some historians have said that the English army was outnumbered six to one. And regardless of which estimates you choose to believe, the prospects of Henry V, King of England, did not look good. It was late October in the year 1415, and the English army stood ready to do battle against a much larger, much bigger French force and Agnet Court in North France. But the numbers were just one of Henry's problems. The English army had marched over 250 miles, taking them nearly three weeks, and they had lost nearly 40% of their original numbers to sickness. The French, in contrast, were better rested, much better spirits, better trained, and more experienced French was also excited at the prospect of extracting revenge on the English to make up for the humiliation of previous defeats. That's interesting. 
And to top it all off, the French were vastly better equipped at this time. The English were lightly armored, but whatever protection they did have was no match to the superior weight of the French armor. But anyone who knows their medieval history already knows the outcome of the battle. Despite the overwhelming odds, the English won. See, the English had one vital piece of technology that was able to confound the French and start a chain of events that would ultimately result in the French defeat. The English had a longbow, a weapon with such astounding range for its time. Standing far from the battlefield, far enough away that heavy armor was not needed, the English could look down into the valley and shower the French with arrows. Now think about it. See, it's not the technology and the range that gave the arrow the power. By itself, an arrow is just a flimsy stick of wood with a sharp pointed tip and some feathers. By itself, now think about this, by itself the arrow cannot stand up to a sword or penetrate armor. <laughs> what gives the arrow the ability to take on experienced training, numbers and armors and momentum is when that flimsy stick of wood is hurling through the arrow or through the air and becomes a force only when it's moving in one direction. But but here's the kicker. You may be asking me right now, Troy, what the Sam Hills has got to do with why? Listen, this is the fun part. In order for the arrow to gain momentum, it has to be pulled backwards 180 degrees from its target. See, the why does not come from looking ahead from looking at what you're going to achieve, from setting your goals, from the action plan, none of that. That's all secondary. you got to look behind to gain the momentum to go forward. It's not born out of market research. It doesn't come from extensive interviews with customers and employees. Finding why is a process of discovery. And most of us walk through life, sadly, blindly, to why we're even here, what we're even doing. And like the English, like the bow and arrow, if we pull back 180 degrees, we might just find our why. That's some pretty powerful words, folks. We can change our lives. We have lived anywhere from probably 18, 19 years to 70, 75 years. If we look deep enough, we can find our why, what it is we're here for. Companies only find their why because it's the passion of the individual founder of the company. Every single person has a why. Every organization has one. But just like organizations can forget their why, so can we. Why is it that when we're kids, we're told we can dream anything, we can be anything we want to be? We hit high school and college, and we're told we can't do that. No, don't do that. 
No, that's not what you want to go to school for. Oh, that's a dead end thing. Why? I think it's time we wake up. I think it's time we start looking. See, every company, every person, every organization has the ability to inspire. But it's going to start with you. It's going to start with a small group of people. Gaining clarity of the why, ironically, isn't the hard part. It's the discipline to trust one's gut and to stay true to one's purpose and their beliefs. Remaining completely in balance and authentic is the most difficult part. It's easy to build the megaphone. It's not easy to get a clear message out there. We've got to know the why, and then we've got to get the, the people involved. Simon shares his personal story in this chapter. I find it interesting. This, this chapter is just full of stories. He said, there was a few months inevitably printed in my memory, September to December 2005. That's when I hit rock bottom. I started my business February 2002, and it was incredible exciting. It was full of... I was full of piss and vinegar, as my grandpa would say. From an early stage, my goal was to start my own business. It was the American dream, and I was living it. My whole feeling of self-worth came from the fact that I did it. I took the plunge, and it felt amazing. If anyone ever asked me what I did, I would pose like George Reeves from the old Superman series. I would put my hands on my hips, stick out my chest, and stand at an angle. I would raise my head and say, I am an entrepreneur. What I did was how I defined myself, and it felt good. I wasn't like Superman. I was Superman. As anyone who started a business knows, it's a fantastic race. There's a statistic that hangs over your head. Over 90% of all new businesses fail in the first three years. For anyone, even a bit, Competitive in spirit, and especially who's someone who defines himself as an entrepreneur's hands on hip, chest out. These overwhelming odds of failure are not intimidating. They only add fuel to the fire. The foolishness of thinking that you're part of a small minority of those who actually make it past three years and defy the odds are part of what makes entrepreneurs who they are, driven by passion and completely irrational. After year one, we celebrate. We've, we haven't gone out of business. We're beating the odds. We're living the dream. Two years passed, then three years passed. I'm not sure how we did it. We never properly implemented any good systems or processes. But to heck with that, we've beaten the odds. I had achieved my goals, and that's all that matters. I was now a proud member of a small group of people who could say with statistical proof, I am an American business owner. I've been there. I know those feelings. But the fourth year would prove to be different. The novelty at being an entrepreneur had worn off. I would no longer stood like George Reeves. When asked what I did, I would now tell people what I that I did positioning and strategy consulting. What the heck is that? <laughs> it was much less exciting, and it certainly didn't feel like a big race anymore. It was no longer a passionate pursuit. It was a business. And that reality was the business did not look so rosy. 
We were never a runway of success. We made a living, but not much more. We had some Fortune 500 clients, and we did good work. I had a crystal clear on what we did. I could tell you how we were different, how we did it. We were like everyone else in the game. I would try to convince prospective clients how we did and how we did it better and how we were unique, and it was hard work. The truth is we beat the odds because of my energy, not because of my business, Ackerman. But I didn't have the energy to sustain the strategy for the rest of my life. And I was aware enough to know that we needed better systems and processes if the business was going to sustain itself. Simon goes on, he says, I was incredibly demoralized. Intellectually, I could tell you what I needed to do. I just couldn't do it. And by September 2005, I was closest that I'd ever been if, it wasn't, if I wasn't already completely depressed. My whole life had been a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. So being unhappy was bad enough, but this was worse. The depression made me paranoid. I was convinced I was going to go out of business. I was convinced I was going to be evicted from my apartment. I was certain anyone who worked with me didn't like me and that my clients knew I was a fraud. I thought everyone I met was smaller than me or smarter than me. I thought everyone I met was better than me. Any energy I had left to sustain the business now went to propping myself up and pretending I was doing well. This is interesting. Have you ever felt this way? If things were to change, I knew I needed to learn to implement more structure before everything crashed. So I attended conferences, read books, and asked successful friends for advice on how to do it. I was It was all good advice, but I couldn't hear it. No matter what I was told, all I could hear was I was I was doing everything wrong. Trying to fix the problem didn't make me feel better. It made me feel worse. I felt more helpless. I started having desperate thoughts, thoughts that for an entrepreneur are almost worse than suicide. I thought I was getting a job. I thought about getting a job, anything, anything that would stop me feeling this every day. I remember visiting my family, family of my future brother-in-law. It was Thanksgiving. I sat on the couch in the living room of his mother's house. People were talking to me, but I never heard a word. If I was asked a question, I only replied in platitudes. I didn't really desire or even have the ability to make conversation anymore. It was then that I realized the truth. Statistics not withstood, I was a failure. As an anthropology major in college and a strategy guy in the marketing and advertising world, I'd always been curious about why people do things they do. Earlier in my career, I started becoming curious about these same themes in the real world, in my case, corporate marketing. There's an old saying in the industry that 50% of all marketing works. The problem is, which 50%? I was always astounded that so many companies would operate with such a level of uncertainty. Why would anyone want to leave the success of something that costs so much with so much at stake to flip a coin. I was convinced that if some marketing worked, it was possible to figure out why. All companies of equal resources had equal access to the same agencies, the same talent, the same media. So why does some marketing work and some doesn't? Working in an ad agency, I'd seen all the truth. All, I'd seen it all the time. 
with conditions relatively equal, the same team could develop a campaign that would hugely be successful one year, then develop something the next year that would do nothing. Instead of focusing on the stuff that didn't work, I chose to focus on the stuff that worked. To find out what it all had in common, the good news for me, there wasn't much to study. How has Apple been able to consistently outmarket their competition over and over and over? What did Harley-Davidson do well that they were able to create a following of people so loyalty they tattooed their bodies? Why did people love Southwest Airlines so much? They weren't really that special. In an attempt to codify why these worked, I developed a simple concept that I called the golden rule. But my little theory set buried in my computer files. It was a little pet project with no real application, just something I found interesting. How many of us have something like that that we've never finished? It was just a little pet project. It would be much later that I met a woman at an event who took an interest in my perspectives in marketing. Victoria Duffy Hooper grew up in an academic family and also has a lifelong fascination with human behavior. She was the first to tell me about the limbic brain and the neocortex. My curiosity peaked by what she was telling me. I started reading about the biology of the brain, and it was then that I made my real discovery. The biology of human nature and the golden circle overlapped perfectly. While I was trying to understand some how marketing worked and some didn't, I had tripped over something vastly more profound. I discovered why people do what people do. And it was then that I realized what was the real cause for my stress. The problem wasn't that I didn't know what to do or how to do it. The problem was I'd forgotten why. I'd gotten through what I knew. What I know now is the split, and I needed to rediscover the why. You and I have to rediscover the why. If we, do, re, if we can discover our why, we can inspire people to do the things that inspire them. Henry Ford said, if you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you're right. He was a why guy. We have to become why people. And through the golden circle and the concept of why, you and I can do that. I've been very successful the last couple, three years in my life. I'm no better connected than anyone else. I don't have a better work ethic than other people. I don't. I definitely don't have an Ivy League education. I succeeded and became very successful in the Marine Corps and everything that I did. I had average grades in school, and yet I'm more successful now than some of the people I graduated with. And it's because I found my why. My why is to bring people hope and opportunity. And I do that through the network marketing arena and through church and spiritual efforts. We do it through the radio shows. We found out in my case that the why is not about being number one. It's actually about being second. It's about being that that crusader, that passionate person that's the rally person for everyone that wants to be somebody. We just happen to do it mostly 
helping building teams of other peoples and ourselves, helping to build companies and motivate CEOs. Find your why today. It can change your world. Tomorrow, the last chapter, the new competition. I think you guys are going to love it. Live life like it's an epic adventure. Stay dangerous. Stay strong. And if you're in network marketing, act like it. You've been listening to the Beachside CEO. Heard on the Home Business Radio Network, the voice in Positive Powered Radio.